day, everyone. My name is Rami Shami. I am the Multicultural Outreach Coordinator for Lighthouse for Grieving Children. And this is the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. A little background on who we are. We're a registered charity that provides at no charge open-ended peer support for grieving children, youth, ages 3 to 18, and their families across the GTA. And especially virtually now that uh, we are in covid some time ago, about three years ago, we recognized that within our participants in our in our peer support modeled groups, there wasn't necessarily a representation of the diversity that is found within the GTA. And we wanted to know why this was the case. And so it's identified in our strategic plan as an objective to launch what we now call uh, the Multicultural Outreach Project. And we utilize what is known as a culturally humble approach to learn from the communities of the GTA, how they may be supported or how they may support and navigate and even view children's and youth grief. So we also looked at, uh, this is part of my role as, as the outreach coordinator. We also looked at if the lighthouse model was conducive to providing support within the diversity of communities within the GTA. And, and how we were able either to change or recognize that we weren't necessarily appropriate and able to serve, you know, all people. So please visit our website. I will provide that information and the links after the podcast or towards the end of the podcast. And also feel free to drop me a line and contact me if you have any questions or would like more information on what we've done for the past three years. Speaking of podcasts, this one is actually a continuation of the Multicultural Outreach Project, which has now turned into more of a community outreach engagement. It started out with a multicultural focus, but now has morphed into a greater scope that involves a measure of diversity, equity, inclusivity, anti-oppression, trauma-informed, anti-racism. And with all that, it brings us to a special guest that I had the honor and privilege of crossing paths in the ether that is death and dying and death care and grief and bereavement. Uh, and today, this special guest, uh, I feel excited to have her on the podcast, especially because of her experience and knowledge of diversity and as it intersects with, uh, with youth grief. Uh, her name is Danielle Lobo. Danielle is a truth teller who rises the challenge of holding space for the uncomfortable experience of death. She asks bold questions that help us to stay present to the intense emotion and anguish. She has the courage and emotional depth to enter into relationships that families have around death with the clarity of vision for grace and ease. Committed to a community justice throughout her life, she holds the voice of her ancestors as her guide to this work, often working with her own dreams and the dreams of the community. And to add a piece to it that, that really, really struck me, I mean, she facilitates as a youth bereavement coordinator with Scarborough Center for Healthy Communities. And she started this youth bereavement program for teenage children who have experienced a death, utilizing, which is what I get excited about, right? Utilizing a multicultural, multi-faith approach to death and grief. In the diversity that we have in the GTA, if not in Canada, I think it's important that we we recognize and acknowledge such work that uh, uh, Ms. Lobo is doing. And I'll let Danielle speak to further of those details. So without much ado, I welcome Danielle Lobo. Good good afternoon. I almost said good morning, Danielle. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Remy. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, how's the day been treating you? Oh, it's a lovely day outside today. Yeah, finally spring is here. And on the day of... 
uh, stay at home orders. It's really, really something, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. I mean, you and I can speak a lot to the impact of the trauma and grief and isolation and, and all those pieces that may have experienced uh, with, with, uh, with the pandemic. But can we just dive into this? You know, I, I really want to hear what you have to say in terms of the work you do. Your website is just is incredible in its articulation and artistry. Um, your short story, lest I forget, uh, the work you're doing with uh, youth bereavement. Can we can we dive right in? Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and how you do it? Yeah, you know, I have different roles, which I I quite like the the diversity of roles that I have in my life. So yeah, I trained as a death doula about four years ago or five years ago. And I really started doing death work internally, like for myself personally, I'd say 10 years ago. And, and, and then I formally looked into how I could learn more about that. And so I, I have trained as a death doula. I've done work in that capacity. And then I, I've, I've worked on, I've been working on a TV series about uh, death and dying and an artistic project around legacy art projects for people who are dying or, or experiencing the legacy that they want to leave when they, when they die. And then, of course, uh, probably my most important project and one that I'm really passionate about is the youth bereavement program called HEAL, Hope Exists After Loss. And yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, I love that particular project. You know, it's it's amazing, Danielle. We you talk about diversity, and yet you're so diverse in what you do, right? I mean, can can I ask you? Uh, I mean, I model that as well. I, I I find to be able to connect on different, I got different domains of service and different catchments and different communities. You kind of have to be diverse, and and in the work that you do. Right. And, and you are as probably as diverse as as people in death care come. Can I ask you what brought you first to death care and especially as a death doula and, and you know, in the artistry as well that, that you facilitate? And then how you started this particular group, which has this, which is amazing title, Hope Exists After Loss. Yeah, so I I can't quite pinpoint exactly how, but I I started working in indigenous communities of various like First Nations, even indigenous African and indigenous elders of South America too, and learning from medicine people around death practices. And that was for me very interesting. That that started about 10, 12 years ago, and I had no you know, I had no consideration of this being my life path at all, but I just was very drawn to that work. I was very drawn to the work of ancestors, which is very much a facet of like many multicultural indigenous practices or traditions around us. So that was my entry point. And then I would say, I remember very vividly five years ago, I was just enrolling in my death doula program and I had someone in my life who was dying and uh, she was a lot older than me. She was about 40, 50 years older than me. I went to visit her and I remember telling her I wanted to be a death doula. And I was so uncomfortable speaking about death with her. Like, like the, there was just a silence and it was really good to visit her, but there was such a silence. And I realized that, you know, this is a whole facet of being in the world that 
that is really like I know nothing about because you know even I think I had done like one weekend or one uh one course of that uh death doula program and I realized when I went to visit her like how unprepared and how emotionally difficult it was yeah I could only appreciate that Danielle especially for myself having the privilege absolute privilege of being in the field for for so many years now can we i mean you have such a background and expertise and experience and knowledge i would say you know uh, i'm humbled even to speak to you about uh this particular topic can you share with us your perception or your experience of what it means to have diversity within death care within grief and bereavement support why isn't it why isn't it an essential and imperative especially in one of the most if not the most diverse geographies in the world when it comes to people yeah I mean I I think it is important because because people if this is my perspective and this is what I've learned from the many elders and traditions that I've been privileged to learn from is that when someone dies they are received by their ancestors and if they do not have the traditions or the multicultural support, like not just multicultural, but the the support that resonates most with their cultural and uh, faith traditions, and especially their ancestors, then it's doing an unjust injustice to their life on earth when they die, so that they are not received by their ancestors in the traditions that most resonate. And so that's why I think it's super important. You know, multiculturalism and equity and diversity has become politically trite, I think. And I I, I do see the value of politicization of uh, multiculturalism. But at the same time, for me spiritually, these are the traditions that most resonate with the like someone's spirit <laughs> like it, yeah. like I see the way that some of the youth come alive when when the practices that we do in the program resonate with them they feel it well, well said well said Danny. can you expand a little bit on what you mean by politically trite I found that intriguing uh, I want to see how how you perceive that how you experience that well, I just mean, you know, like checking the boxes. I, I know that this is very true in the charitable sector or in many sectors that, you know, how many black and brown people do we have visibly in our, our programs? How many people do we, are we serving? Like just checkbox demographics. And I think that's problematic because we we may not really understand how the very system of of the programs or just the model of the programs caters to like a white way of doing things in the world and i and i i think that by looking at it that way like we're we're detaching ourselves from this this mentality of like just checking our boxes with multiculturalism and 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 because you may have black and brown or all kinds of diverse youth in programs or people in palliative care centers or hospitals but do the practices of that specific organization or institution resonate with the traditions uh, both culturally and faith-wise for those people which is another big gap i think oh so well said danielle and especially when you're talking about uh, checking the boxes that we have certain demographics represented but if those demographics are represented without the services being appropriate or infused 
with cultural perspectives of the demographics we're serving, then really what's the point, right? You're absolutely, there's, there's checking the boxes. And I appreciate that you mentioned something in terms of gaps and barriers, right? You might, I added maybe barriers, but can you speak a little bit more, especially when it comes to, and I suspect, and I don't want to put words out there, I suspect that might've been behind, or I should just ask you if that was behind some of the intentionality in spawning this youth bereavement program? I think the gap is one thing that I, it's hard to say specifically, but I think that in general, the gap is that a lot of uh, cultural, like cultures and uh, faith practices do not believe in airing their, uh, their personal, like their family trauma around a death publicly or going to see like a therapist, going to see a palliative care center because they're seen as outsiders, which is very much like white organizations. That's what I've seen. And so I think that uh, the need for a program like this, at least as far as I know for the program, because I am uh, new to the team, is that for five years we were working with adults around bereavement and we and nothing for youth. So that is a major impetus for why the youth program came about. But also that you know, adults can can mold into or melt into programs that may not resonate with their culture and their faith traditions. But teenagers, like they'll check out within a second if you're not if you're not keeping them interested. And so I think there's even more of a need for the programs to be culturally relevant because like teenagers have one second to to get their attention. And if you don't get their attention, then they're checked out, they're isolated, they're dealing with their depression or their bereavement and loss on their own. And so I think that's why the cultural piece and faith, uh, multi-faith perspective is super important. And I appreciate, you know, how you said they, uh, they, they checked out. Is that, is that reflective of the intergenerational piece? I mean, Canada is very unique like that. Not maybe not so unique, but it is unique that way. And then we have immigration, emigration, indigenous, and this intergenerational piece. I mean, I'm pretty in, in intergenerational. My parents came as refugees and then I was born and raised here, but uh, I'm always in this in-between worlds right, in terms of, especially in hospice palliative care and grief and bereavement, which is a very Anglo-European model and how it's being even exercised and facilitated. Um, it needs to change a great deal to be appropriate to, to, to measures of diversity. Is there an intergenerational piece that you see, especially is this what you're seeing in the groups that you're, you're running? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have run programs where the adults actually, like the parents of the youth wanted to join the program for certain sessions because of what was happening. So there's the intergenerational piece that way. The other way that I would answer that is that intergenerational trauma is very relevant, which we would say is also like ancestral healing. And I think that youth by their very nature are are really vulnerable because they're still growing. They're not fully formed into their identity or to who they are um, and, and their personal strength. And I think like at least I've learned this philosophy or this understanding from a karmic um, yogic perspective because I'm Indian. So I've, I've studied uh, yoga as well a bit. And I, I learned that youth, like by their nature, are spiritually vulnerable. And when there's been a death in the family, like the karma of the person who has died 
ends up with the youth if they're spiritually vulnerable. And so I think that is just like a very subtle thing that goes on with the inter intergenerational uh, effects of not dealing with a death or with a community approach. And then I would just say that as well, like some of the youth that I, I work with, like they are coming from, so they've experienced a death in their life, but they also are coming from like genocide, like their family has experienced yes, genocide yes, in, yes. in generations before. When I t speak to them, I, you know, they may not be aware of this, but I can see, especially with um, like, just for instance, some, some Tamil youth I work with, like I can tell that the, the grief that they're experiencing is multi-generational, if not inherited grief around the Tamil genocide. Thank you for bringing that awareness. And I think that's the piece that's missing a lot of in our grief and bereavement. May I ask you, Danielle, how do you see it? How, how have you seen it presented to you in, in the individuals, in the youth that you've worked with or in your groups? How does it present? How do you recognize it? Recognize, sorry, uh, intergenerational trauma. Yeah, how do you recognize that that experience, that grief, that intergenerational trauma? How is it? How have you seen it presented to you, especially among youth? So one of the first things, which is sort of an anomaly, uh, I think, within the way that youth bereavement happens, um, that one of the first things I ask the youth, two things. I ask them, what was their experience of the funeral, and if you know, not that I'm the beacon of all knowledge around funerals, but if the funeral was steeped in sort of like the traditions of their of their family or their lineage, then I think that there is some way of like speaking to the intergenerational trauma. But a lot of the youth I've speak, spoken to have not been to the funeral or um, experienced the funeral in sort of like a blasé way, like they were checked out. And so I think that is a sign of intergenerational trauma, the way that the funeral went. And, and if they even did the funeral, because when when the funeral has not happened, that is a cue for me that there's a lack of like support throughout generations and that they that there's like a lack of family or community support for the deaths in this family as a lineage around um, around grief, like having a grief ritual is more than just symbolic. It serves a purpose. So that's one way. And then another way that I, I can sense if there's intergenerational trauma, I usually actually always ask the youth their dreams that they have at night. And, and many of the youth will tell me their dreams. And uh, they have dreams of their, their grandparents, their a parent or a friend who has died. And that usually, because I've, I'm sort of well-versed in the language of dreams through my work with elders, I, I can usually understand um, the in intergenerational trauma through their dreams. I so appreciate hearing this because it's, uh, I would love to connect you. You might already know him who does a lot of work on grief teams is Dr. Joshua Black. He does, he did his whole research and PhD on grief dreams. And it's amazing that you know, you are uh, inquiring to these youth about their dreams, their quote unquote grief dreams, as it represents or reflects or expresses this intergenerational trauma. Like what goes through my mind, Danielle, how did you come across this? How did you learn about it? Is it something just, you know, personal or with the youth that it came forth or something that you studied 
you know, in, in your grad work, how, how did you come, or even in, 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 in death doing, how did you come to that? Well, yeah, it definitely didn't come through me, come to me through the mainstream school system or even through my death doula school, which was pretty alternative in and of itself. I work with like an indigenous African elder. I've worked with, or I've, I've learned from and, and participated in uh, rituals with elders of various traditions. And I would often tell them my own dreams. And through that, they would tell me the kind of healing that I need to do for my ancestry and my lineage. Wow. Um, because, so you know, in layman's terms, there was bad karma around my own uh, lineage and ancestry. And so for me doing a lot of my own personal healing work uh, of my lineages, both feminine and masculine, I've learned the importance of how how trauma um, is inherited and how we manifest the same issues that our, our parents' generations and beyond did. And so with that, I, I really see that um, the kind of transformational healing that I think youth are looking for comes from a deeper perspective of looking to your ancestors, looking to your lineage uh, to see where the, the trauma came from. That's beyond just your own experience in your life. That is really groundbreaking in terms of how to look at grief and bereavement among youth. Because in, in, in the three decades and however long I've been in grief and bereavement, rarely is lineage uh, intergenerational, even the word trauma and, and ancestors spoken about in traditional mainstream grief and bereavement support. I'll say this too, that many of the multicultural uh, representation of Scarborough or of like the GTA, we come from cultures that prior to colonialism, we had a strong connection to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so the legacy of colonialism is actually a disconnection to our ancestors, in addition to racism, in addition to systemic inequalities and all of those things. Well, but what I see is under that does not have as much attention is the disconnection to our ancestors, where many of us came from cultures where, uh, where our practices, our faith surrounded or revolved around our ancestors. And, and, and that was a sort of natural way of coping with grief and coping with, uh, with loss. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. And in that same measure, how do you see we can change that in mainstream? Well, I use the term mainstream. Maybe that's not even an appropriate term. In what we're doing in grief and bereavement support, not what necessarily what you're doing, but what we're doing across the province, especially in hospices and, and bereavement programs. How do you think we can change it? How do you think we can kind of adopt what you're speaking to? Well, you know, I think it starts uh, on a very practical note. At the beginning, when when an idea is piloted, like, so how is the grant written? Because I know most of these endeavors, like bereavement, palliative work, are done by charitable organizations or people in the not-for-profit sector or hospitals. So it has to come from the, the funding idea that there's input there at that stage, uh, an investment from leadership around hearing the diverse constituents of that community and, and, and having impact, taking their time to really hear what um, diverse communities want out of, a, out of a program that is supposed to meet their needs. 
Yeah, especially when the programs are, and, and this is something that, you know, I've worked and Lighthouse, we've worked together in terms of addressing this. No one faces, you know, death alone. No one faces cancer alone. No one should grieve alone. And yet that is, you know, what are we doing within our programming to really fulfill that kind of mission and vision? I'm, you know, I, I have so many questions for you, even about what you do as a, as a death doula. So can we switch gears a little bit? Because I'm sure our listeners would like to know a little bit more about Healing Boat and your short story, and even maybe a bit about the documentary, the filming that you're doing, uh, known as How We Die. Can we can we shift a little bit? And because the, with the diversity that you come with, there's so much to to engage you with, and I want to be respectful of your time. So, can we start there somewhere and talk a little bit about th- those aspects that you uh, you are engaged in? Yeah, the hearing boat came actually from from just wanting to work with people in the community who are dying or who have had their um, who who want to have an like you know an alternative out of the hospital experience because I think most people if you ask them do not want to die in a hospital it's very rare that they that they say that or at least in an ambulance so I think where a lot of my effort has um, has been in the last few years is an education like ho- holding public holding public events and getting people talking about death. Uh, I've, 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 I've done things like that where people are able to, to see the options that they have. I've worked with people closer to, to death and, and, and not necessarily, I think there's a big vision around being a death doula that has not quite manifested for many people in the death doula community because there is, we're such a medical system, we're so oriented around the medical system being the, the way that people uh, experience death or go through that that journey and so I think through what I've done is mostly being education and then working with clients one-on-one uh, at various stages to to assist them with their own planning and their own consideration reflections imperative work and you are a literary artist are you not yes yeah yeah I, I love to write and there's isn't there a legacy piece to that with respect to grief and death and dying and bereavement? And you wrote a short story called "Lest I Forget." Is that correct? Well, no. So the, the the story was part of um, a a compilation, uh, an anthology called "Lest We Forget." So my story was uh, one of many stories. Yeah. If anyone would like more information about uh, the story or Danielle's work, visit uh, healingboat.com. I'm going to circle back around Danielle and just uh, give a plug, if that's okay with you, to Hope Exists After Loss, which is the acronym HEAL, the youth program. It's an eight-week youth program for ages 12 to 19. And how would somebody, if they're interested in this youth program, Danielle, how would they connect? Would they email you at uh, Scarborough Center for Healthy Communities? Uh, Would they call you? Would they check the website? How would they register? Yeah, so the, the the website is our schcontario.ca slash heal, and um, it's for any youth age 12 to 19 in Scarborough, living in Scarborough. And yeah, that, there's, you know, a lot of other programs have a bit of more requirements. Ours is only that they live in Scarborough and they've experienced a loss. There's no time frame on how long that loss has been. And there's no limitation on, for instance, like that it be an immediate family member. Some of the youth are there because of a friend who who died. 
and and then also like there's no specification on the type of loss so we have a lot of youth from different um, experiences for instance it could be you know murder suicide uh, illness and uh, like accident we have a program that allows any youth uh, who experience a loss yeah it's not death specific correct yeah like lighthouse no. like lighthouse and, and that's an important piece in terms of grief and bereavement now I just have one last question for you, uh, and it's pretty lofty. And uh, what are your maybe your hopes, your dreams, your vision for a future that acknowledges, validates, and maybe infuses diversity, equity, inclusivity, uh, multiculturalism, trauma-informed, uh, anti-oppression within death care, within grief and bereavement care? Well, okay, just in in jest, but not really uh, as a joke. It would be uh, helpful if uh, on death certificates they wrote racism as a cause of death, because I feel like there's, there's, there's so much, like you cannot even undercount how much stress racism like brings to people, even if it's not the immediate cause of death. So that's just something I I thought of on the spot. But in in terms of like actual uh, programming, I think just like putting the trust, which means the dollar and funding towards towards community like healing approaches that involve elders, that involve uh, like the whole family, um, that involve community in like traditional practices, right? And and I think like there's this whole secularization as a way to balance the playing field of, of bereavement and palliative care. And I think that does a disservice to to the rich traditions that come with like the diverse peoples who are living in the GTA or in Scarborough. So I would really just love to see funding going towards like multicultural uh, ways of approaching death. That that would be like the biggest thing that I'd love to see. Yeah, especially from from a funding perspective, um, which would be a shift in priorities, especially with respect to that funding. And I don't think it's in jest at all, Danielle. I think it's brilliant, death by racism, because of the implications and even the trauma, the traumatization that it can occur due to uh, experiences of racism. So, so well said. Not in jest at all. I'll, 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 I, yeah, I appreciate that perspective very much, especially as, you know, I'm, I'm, Middle, um, my parents are Middle Eastern. I'm Canadian Middle Eastern or Middle Eastern Canadian. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, I had experienced a lot of racism as uh, uh, growing up intergenerationally. But that all being said, your wisdom, what you're doing out in the field, you know, facilitating this group, establishing this group, your work as a death doula, and and you know, it, it's just it's uh, it's it's imperative work, and I, I so appreciate it. Uh, very much aligned. I'm so happy that we crossed paths and that we were able to connect. Uh, we are, we're always learning, right? And and your perspectives. And I, and I hope this isn't, uh, you know, our our last conversation, especially when it comes to uh, this measure of of social services that we uh, we engage in. Anything else that you would like to share with us in in the moments that we have left, Danielle? I think for youth, uh, just experiencing the isolation of the pandemic. One of the ways that I've really tried to build a sense of community is I'm delivering like grief care packages in the next few days to all of the youth directly to their home. Like we're, we're you know, with Emma and the mask and all the COVID protocols. 
But um, just like literally delivering a package with snacks, food, um, all kinds of self-care items that will help them with their grief. And I think that's like, that's so helpful because it just brings a smile to their face and they feel like this human contact in a time where they've just lost someone and now they have to stay at home. Yeah, that's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful, Danielle. The legwork, the intentionality in it, even the perspective to recognize the impact of the pandemic on on these youth is is exceptional. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for actually almost, if I can say, role modeling in so many different ways how we can we can provide these services. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all that you share and all that you're doing. Her website is healingboat.com. For more information on the youth bereavement program Danielle is facilitating called HEAL, Hope Exists After Loss, please visit www.schcontario.ca backslash HEAL. For more information on our organization, please visit us on our website, www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rami Shami, and this has been the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. Stay safe, everyone. Mm -hmm.